honor this morning will be by Vance Eastridge, please. I spoke for 16 years from this pulpit without a microphone. <laughs> then my voice left me. I had to use it. I stood with a man at the beginning of the year, and I said to him, Give me a light to guide my way. And he answered and said, Put your hand in the hand of God. That is better than light and better than a long way. Father, we stand at a time in our nation's history when we can look backward and we can look forward. We can look to either side. And we're amazed at the changes that are coming about in all quarters. Some of us are delighted at the way and things are going. Other of us are fearful of the way things are going. But we're all in it together. And we pray for the leadership of our country that they may know your will for our nation. And they will have the courage and the will and the desire to bring these things about. We have come through times of distress, but we have a future that lies ahead of us over which we have control and over which we can create and develop. We stand at a place in our lives where we can put our hand in your hand, and it is you who gives us guidance for the way in which we shall go, the choices that we make, and the attitudes that we have. We thank you for the spokesman for you who lead us each day each week. We're here this morning because we are going to anticipate the telling of the story that changes lives. Be with Phil as he opens his heart and mind. We thank you for his scholarship, his witness to us each week. Give us open hearts and open minds. Help us to be responsive to all that takes place here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Vance. If you all notice to my left and to my right, we've got a new sound system. Uh, several put in uh, a request and uh, to me, and uh, we made that happen. So if it is too loud or not loud enough, Feel free to raise your hand, especially when Phil comes. Um, one of us will tweak it, and uh, we'll get it fine-tuned. But I believe it's pretty close. It sounds pretty well. But uh, Phil, you will this time. Good morning. said it's going to be harder to fall asleep, Art. Not hard. 
Gosh, it sounds so loud and sounds like God speaking. <laughs> I believe my voice just got lower. Whatever, whatever teenager wants, teenage young man, right? Lower voice. I hope you've had a good week. Looks like we're going to have a couple more days of winter. Uh, it's, it's trying to snow out there now a little bit. No worries. Um, the daffodils are the ones that are worried, right? They're up about this far. That's uh, crazy. Um, one of the beautiful things that happened in our family's life is that we were celebrating Kim's birthday last night a little early and uh, all the children drove in, surprised her for dinner last night. So that was fun. Uh, we don't all get to be in the house at the same time. Very often. And we had red velvet cake. Yeah, I made red velvet cake. We did. I have to confess, we did. And um, it, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't bad. Yeah. Uh, we're all coming over this afternoon. Well, you better get there in a hurry because I'm pretty sure everyone else is getting their second piece pretty early today. So, uh, well, we've been, uh, I've been using Henry Nouwen's book, Our Greatest Gift, A Meditation on Dying and Caring, uh, to talk just for a few weeks uh, about what it might mean to think of our dying as a gift and what it might mean to think of those around us who are dying as a gift and that would be all of us right we try to remind ourselves that week that we're all we're all dying from the, the moment we're born um, we don't think about it that way and we don't necessarily have to think about it that way but it's it's probably important occasionally uh, to be reminded of that. And what Nowen does, um, and I should say I've, I've left a few more um, copies of the book in the back if you want to pick one up. Again, we're not using it, we're not assigning things. Um, I'm not sticking to the text per se, and I'm trying to use other things as well, so it's not as though we're just looking at the book. But it is there for a resource. If you'd like one, feel free to pick one up. Um, and what he tries tries to do, what we talked about last week, is he, th he thinks that for, for all of us who need to try to uh, embrace our dying as a gift, there are three things that we, we need to embrace. We need to embrace um, the truth that we are a child of God. We are a beloved child of God. And because we are a beloved child of God, that brings us to the second truth that we need to embrace, and that is that we're brothers and sisters of each other. Right? And then that leads to the third truth that we're going to start with today, and that is that we're parents of another generation, a future generation. So it's a, we're, we're, notice it's all uh, familial, right, as in family. It's all family language, right? We're children of God, we're brothers and sisters, and we're parents of a future generation. And the way he helpfully, I think, talks about this, this third truth that we embrace um, is to remind us that the future that we don't see, 
uh, the future is, is going to be, for all of us, more than we know, um, a time of fruitfulness. And here he tries to make a really helpful distinction that um, I wish I'd been clear about earlier in my life. And that's the sort of distinction uh, between being productive and being fruitful. Um, now there's certain kinds of ways I suppose you could sort of collapse those into the other, and I think sometimes we think of them as the same, but he, he helpfully distinguishes them. Um, and the reason I think it's important to get clear about this is because I think our culture is pretty much fixated on productivity. And we don't even in church necessarily talk as much about fruitfulness as we probably ought to. And so let's talk a little bit about the difference and why it matters, uh, particularly as we try to embrace uh, the gift of, of dying. He tries to remind us that uh, when he wants to echo, you know, Jesus' words from, from John uh, chapter 12, uh, where Jesus says, you know, unless a grain of wheat dies, it doesn't bear any fruit. But if it dies, it brings forth a harvest of fruit. And he, re he reminds us that, that even in the life of Jesus, right, that's a pretty remarkable place to start, even in the life of Jesus, Jesus' death brings fruitfulness. Jesus' death brings fruitfulness. Um, it looks during Jesus' life, and as Jesus' life is coming to a close, it looks to human eyes as if he was a failure. Right? I mean... It looks as though Jesus is a failure. Um, best we can tell, Jesus himself might have been agonizing about that in the garden. Certainly on the cross, you know, this cry of abandonment that Jesus himself offered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looks like a failure. And yet, we all know, it wasn't, right? Um, through Jesus' death and the new life that comes through his death, Jesus was more fruitful than any other human being we know in human history, right? We, would, we are part of that fruitfulness. Right, um, and while it's true, none of us are Jesus for sure. Um, but what Nowen reminds us of is that you know, way beyond this notion, you know, sometimes we can we can be a little sentimental when we talk about somebody lives on inside of us. But there's something actually true about that. And it has everything not to do with us, but it has to do with God and the way that God has made us. Um, we are people, human beings, who are animated creatures, right? We, we are people who are animated by various spirits, if you will. I mean, the word animate, right, is just from the Latin word for 
spirit. We're animated. Um, and the beauty of that is that we are capable of being indwelled, animated by things outside of ourselves. And this is part of what it means to be a human being. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, it makes it possible for the spirit, the same spirit that animated, gave life to, and power to Jesus, that same spirit can dwell in, live in, animate us. And one of the ways that that happens is that those who go before us who are animated by the Spirit shape us, right? That's, that's one of the ways, it's not the only way, it's one of, one of the main ways that the Spirit comes to animate us is through other people, other godly men and women whose lives and witness has a powerful shaping force on us. All of you know of people in your life, godly men and women, people of the Spirit of God, who actually in some sense dwell inside you. I mean, you, you, don't, you wouldn't even know who you were apart from them, right? That, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful <coughs> thing. And they can dwell in you while they're still alive, for sure. Um, they also continue to dwell inside you, inside me, after they're gone, after they have died. But they, we have a sense that they are still bearing much fruit in our lives. Right? You know this, because you you, you've had that experience. Um, and so that's, that's part, I mean, now it reminds us that in the, in the 16th chapter of John, uh, Jesus says this very perplexing thing. He says, uh, you know, I know that you're, you're sad that I'm leaving, um, but it's actually a good thing. Jesus says it's actually a good thing that I'm leaving um, because if I leave, then this other animating force, this other advocate, this comforter, the Spirit will come and dwell within you and make all things known to you. And now it says, yes, we're not Jesus. Right? We don't give the Spirit in the same way that Jesus does. But there, it's interesting that God, if God fills us with the Spirit, and if we are filled with the Spirit as the people of God, as living, breathing body of Christ, then there's no reason to think, and we think we all have experienced that it's true, that God animates other people. God sends the Spirit through us to other people as well. And that's part of our fruitfulness. That's part of our fruitfulness. And that work of fruitfulness extends beyond our life. Right? Um, the shaping power that my, my parents had on me, right? I, I'd like to think by the grace and power of God has continued to bear fruit in my life well after their death. They've been gone for a very long time, right? But, the, but their, God's work through them, God's work in me through them continues. And so 
there's a sense in which we are not just children of God, brothers and sisters, but also parents of another generation. Speaking of children of God, <laughs> please give us an app. You want to come up here so I can hear you? That would be good. All of you, come up here. <laughs> On cue, speaking of children of God, being parents of another generation, please get right, right up next to the microphone. Okay. Um, next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, where we reach out in missions to the community around us, uh, like Northside. Um, I'll start by taking non-perishable food donations by Northside Pantry. Please bring like oatmeal, cereal, like canned goods, like all that kind of stuff, and bring it to the worship services with you on Sunday morning. Um, we will also be hosting our annual soup and sandwich lunch next Sunday in the Fellowship Hall to support our youth missions to serve in West Virginia and Johnson City. Um, lunch will be from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., and the cost is $5 per person. Lunch will include soup, sandwiches, desserts, and drinks. We hope you guys can come. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> One person with the announcement, six people to give moral support. <laughs> so it now says, if that's true, right, if it's true that our work of fruitfulness extends well beyond our life, that um, that work is actually much as vital or more vital than the kind of work that we're encouraged to think is so important. That's our work of productivity. Again, he's not downplaying that the part of human life is to be productive. But, and he says, you know, we can, but when we, get, when we start to get towards our twilight years, most of us don't really care about the awards and the achievements and the trophies and the, the accolades and the achievements. Those things don't really matter as much. And the question is why? We have this sense, we have this kind of uh, nagging sense that those things really aren't important to us as much as maybe they were at the moment. And he, his point is because most of those things don't extend over time. Right? I've got a basement full of trophies. Well, what are they good for? Right? I mean, they need to be, yeah, they need to be dusted, right? To get the people who dust, right? Um, I mean, people are just too polite to throw them away. But they just probably should be. Right? They really don't serve any purpose. Right? But what does serve, what, what is beautiful over time is this fruitfulness. And, and this is, I mean, the, one of the reasons this is life-giving, I think, to talk about this now is um, you, we shouldn't be waiting until our twilight years to be thinking about fruitfulness. I mean, now it says, this, this, is, this is good news, this is important word for all of us in whatever stage of dying we are. Again, we're all in some stage of dying. Because we should be giving ourselves as much as we can to the work of fruitfulness. What, what kinds of things give to fruitfulness? And his point is, um, there are things that we do that lead to fruitfulness, but more times than not, our fruitfulness is tied up with who we are and, and being who we are. And this is this, 
this shift from the overemphasis on doing to being. And this is one of the gifts that those who are in their twilight years remind us of, and that is that as we move into this second childhood, as we move into the second childhood and become more and more dependent on others and can do less and less, we are reminded that our fruitfulness is normally not tied to what we can do. It is who we have been to others. Right? Who we have been to others. If God bears fruit in my life after I die, it will not be so much what I did. It will be who I was to others. And so I should be, each day I wake up, I don't have to wait until, if, if I have the, the chance to reflect before I die on my coming death, I shouldn't wait till then to be thinking about fruitfulness. I should be thinking about it now. I should be giving myself to the extent that I can to those things that by God's grace will bring, will bring fruitfulness when, I'm, when I pass from this life. And that, that way God, God's power, God's witness uh, bears fruit over time. This is what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus did things um, for sure. He certainly helped people. Uh, but you might ask yourself, you know, couldn't have Jesus have done a lot more miracles and helped a lot more people during that three years of ministry? Um, I mean, he fed a lot of people. He, he, we have accounts of him healing a lot of people. No doubt he healed more than we know. But certainly, if he stayed around, he could have done more. Could have healed more. Could have done good things. Nothing wrong with any of those good things he did. Those were life-giving. But what he mainly did is he gave himself to some people who were, by God's grace and the Spirit that came to dwell in them, utterly transformed. And they too became fruitful. And the people, those people became fruitful, which explains why we're sitting here this morning this harvest of fruitfulness. Now, one of the ancient sayings of the church is that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we often think of martyrs as you know, those who have been killed for their faith, and they certainly are martyrs. Uh, but the word martyrs just comes from the Greek word for witness, right? A person who bears witness, and cer certainly someone who is, you know, dies for their faith is a witness, but they're not the only witnesses, right? Each of us are called to live in such a way that our life bears witness to the truth of Jesus, the truth of our belovedness in God, the truth of our being brothers and sisters of each other, the truth that God desires through the Spirit to do a work of fruitfulness. And that means we need to, to, to shift to think about what, what's the, the meaning in my daily life? What's, what's the meaning of all this stuff that I'm doing? Is it, is it by God's grace leading towards fruitfulness? 
Or is it just, you know, am I getting too easily caught up in things that just feel like achievements that actually have no reason to think they will bear fruit? This, we hope, now in hopes that when we move then, when we begin to see the importance of fruitfulness, then we begin to see why it's, it's not, it need not be so discouraging when we find ourselves in the twilight years and we find ourselves less and less able to do the things that we like to be able to do and that we've taken so much pride in over our lives. And we need not, uh, there's no reason that we have to feel like we're a burden when other people have to do for us, have to help us. Um, we, have this, we have this opportunity to slow down and reflect in the later years of our life about how is God now and how might God work fruitfulness in my life? What's, what's been the meaning of this? Um, I'm pretty sure God didn't bring me uh, to earth uh, to just crank out a few achievements, a few awards, a few trophies. Um, but God has brought me into existence, brought you into existence um, in order that we might take joy in our being beloved children of God, of being brothers and sisters, of having the privilege of being part of God's work of fruitfulness, and to have an opportunity, uh, in some ways, if not forced upon us, encouraged. I mean, there might be a gift in our slowing down to be reminded that our identity is not wrapped around all that doing. And so, we are children, beloved children of God, we're brothers and sisters of each other, and then we are parents of a future generation by God's grace and work of fruitfulness in our lives. And then, so that's what he says is what we, we all, all of us, have to come to terms with. And then the second half of the book is, well, how, do, how does all of that help us care for those who might be in their twilight years and maybe moving closer towards dying and death. And so he goes through those same three things. Um, once you and I have, by God's grace, moved a little closer to embracing our belovedness of children of God, how do we, how do we help others? Let me help others do that. And I want to just read you a couple paragraphs, more than I usually read, just because he's got a couple paragraphs in here that I think are really helpful when he's talking about care and how once you've, once you've made this shift away from thinking that everything is about doing, but it's partly about being, and it's not about, it's more towards meaning, what's the meaning of our life, uh, what's the meaning of those who are around us, then it even shifts the care that we give. He says, care as I speak of it here is the loving attention given to another person. Not because that person needs it to stay alive, not because that person or some insurance company is paying for it, 
Not because care provides jobs. Not because the law forbids our hastening death. And not because that person can be used for medical research. But because that person is a child of God, just as we are. So just as our belovedness as a child of God is the center of our identity, that's, that's also at the, the center of why we care for others. They're not just an object for my doing, but I'm trying to honor their identity as children of God. To care for others as they become weaker and closer to death is to allow them to fulfill their deepest vocation, that of becoming ever more fully what they already are. Did you get that? Pretty important. To allow them to fulfill their deepest vocation, that of becoming ever more fully what they already are, daughters and sons of God. That's what our care is about. Trying to help them become more fully what they already are. It is to help them to claim, especially in their dying hours, their divine childhood, and to let the Spirit of God cry out from their hearts, Abba, Father. To care for the dying is to keep saying, you are the beloved daughter of God. You are the beloved Son of God. How do we do this? There are countless ways. Through words, prayers, and blessings. Through gentle touch and holding of hands. Through cleaning and feeding. Through listening and just being there. Some of these forms of care may be helpful. Right? Other people say, well, it's so helpful. Some, but some not. And that's really, his point is, not the point. But all are ways of expressing our faith that those we care for are precious in God's eyes. Through our caring presence, we keep announcing that sacred truth. Dying is not a sweet, sentimental event. It's a great struggle to surrender our lives completely. This surrender is not an obvious human response. And here, here he gets very honest, right? It might be easy to say, this is easy. Um, but he's saying, no, it's not. There's nothing in us naturally that wants to do this. This surrender is not an obvious human response. To the contrary, we want to cling to whatever is left it is for this reason that dying people have so much anguish. As did Jesus, dying people often experience their total powerlessness as rejection and abandonment. Often the agonizing cry, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, makes it difficult to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But that's, that's what our care is designed to, to do, is to be present with people who are dying in order to honor them as children of God, beloved children of God, and to be used by God to help them, particularly those who are anguished, uh, to, to move from my God, 
my God, why have you abandoned me? To into your hands I commend my spirit. And that is beautiful work, right? That that is that is meaningful work. Nowin tells a a powerful story. Um, for those of you who who read uh, some of this this week, um, he surprisingly now in such a quirky character. When you read about his life, he just does all kinds of weird things. Um, he went to he went to see uh, some trapeze artists, uh, and he actually was just really taken by them. Went up and spoke to them, and. Um, they actually said, they actually became really good friends. And they said, you know what? You should come to our practices uh, and you should travel with us for a week or so. And he did, right? Um, and he actually published these interviews uh, later in his life. Um, I mean, who does that, right? Who goes up and talks to trapeze artists and they say, oh yeah, let's go eat together. And you start talking with them and say, you should travel with us. And it's like, okay, <laughs> why not? Um, that's the kind of person now it was. I mean, it's just, but he learns, he has this beautiful insight that resonates so, so deeply in the Christian faith. And it actually is, uh, what resonated with me immediately is that it resonates with some of the, the deepest convictions of the Christian faith that are actually are uh, etched in some of the great uh, iconography of the, the Eastern Church. Some of you know that the Eastern Church uh, they have icons, and uh, I want to come back to that because this is what he says. And so uh, he talks to them. Uh, he's talking to the, uh, the the guy who's in who's the, the the sort of head of the family of this family trap trapeze artist, and they're talking about like, how do you do this? I mean, how do how does this work? And it says the key the key um, is is sort of understanding what seems counterintuitive to, to us. When we watch a trapeze artist, we think uh, the person that's really doing something is the flyer, right? The person who's flying through the air, you're thinking, gosh, I could never do that. Just, it just kind of makes, I don't know how many of you sort of don't, are, not, are not fans of heights. Um, the older I get, the, the less I'm, I, I like heights. I don't know. I don't think it used to bother me as much as it does now. Now it really messes with me. Um, but I look at that and I think, gosh, that's, that's incredible. Uh, he says, you know, even though everyone's eye, uh, everyone's watching, everyone's paying attention to, everyone's awed by the flyer, uh, it's the catcher who does all the work. And the one who makes it happen is the catcher. And he says, well, what, what do you do as the flyer? He says, nothing. I'm thinking, what? He says, no, you just, you let go, and then you let yourself be caught. He says, if you try, if you're the flyer and you try to grab the wrists of the catcher, you'll either break his or her wrists or they'll break yours. You have to open up your arms and fly and let yourself be caught which is, in my imagination, the sort of perfect image of 
the life of faith in God, right? I, I want to do something, right? And part of our, part of our um, ministry of presence to those who are dying is to remind them that they are beloved children of God and to let themselves be caught, right? To let themselves open their arms to God as they're dying and let themselves be caught. There is nothing, it's no longer time to do anything. The time for doing is over. Now is the time to let yourself be caught. When I read that story, I immediately thought of one of the most important icons in the Eastern Church is the icon of the resurrection. And I tried to get a, I didn't have time to go to our local Eastern Orthodox Church here in town and ask if I could borrow their, their giant resurrection icon, but um, I couldn't even run off a big enough one to make it worthwhile. But let me just tell you the important part about it. Um, in the East, they don't try to represent uh, the event of the resurrection. And icons are not tried to be representational. They try to depict the deep theological truths going on. And so the central icon of the Eastern Church of the Resurrection is of Jesus harrowing, emptying out hell. And what he's doing is he's standing on the, the gates of hell, which are two wooden doors that are shaped like a cross, He's standing on top of them, and he's reaching down, depending on which, and he's grabbing the wrist of Adam and Eve. Right? Our parents, the first, our first parents. They aren't, they aren't grabbing his hand. He's not offering them his hand. He is grabbing their wrists. He is doing all the work. They're not doing anything other than letting themselves be caught, so to speak, right? This is, this is an ancient truth in the Christian faith, right? And that's, that's part of our work. Both is to more and more move in our lives where we are more and more willing to open our arms to our, to our loving Father, to our brother Jesus, and to let ourselves be caught. And that's our calling with our brothers and sisters who are dying, is to be present with them, to remind them continually of their belovedness and to let them, encourage them with joy, not resignation, but with joy, to throw themselves and let themselves be caught. Let's pray. Gracious God, in the coming days and months, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, continue to remind us of our belovedness, 
may we be protected from taking too much pride in our doing and our achievements and our accomplishments. Teach us to rest in our belovedness. Teach us to find our deep and true identity in our belovedness. And help us to be more present to each other in ways that remind one another of our belovedness, that we might open up our arms in joy, that we might fly and be caught. We pray this through the one who most fully revealed our belovedness, Jesus Christ.